What's up everybody, welcome back to the channel. I'm glad you could tune in today for another episode of this great Q&A. It's been a great year of being able to do this almost every single Friday for the last 12 months. Started last December of 2019, and here we are in December of 2020. So today uh, we have some great questions that came in about using Barry Harris's diminished method. We talk a little bit about minor seven flat five chords and minor two fives, and a little bit of a deep dive into kind of what should you know in terms of jazz history and trombone history, and kind of taking a kind of a large picture, big picture overview of that. So thanks for being here on the Q&A. Uh, glad you could uh, join us. Make sure you're leaving your questions down below. I do see all the comments and I add them to future Q&A. So leave your questions down below and we'll be sure to uh, answer them in a future Q&A. So thanks and uh, make sure you're subscribed to the channel down below and uh, more subscribers means more content can be made. So uh, share these with friends. That's also December 2020s so if you're watching it. You might be interested uh, in a holiday video playlist of some Christmas slash holiday music that my students made and I made over the last couple of years. So you can find that uh, down in the description below if you want to check out some holiday music. So enjoy and uh, we'll catch you in the next one. Talk about a little bit. It's coming up to the end of the year. And uh, I, especially this year, with everything, and we don't know when it's going to be that we're going to be able to get back to the things that we want to do, namely playing gigs, traveling, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think it's more important than ever to be planning ahead. And maybe it's a plan for an undetermined date, but it's super important to not just kind of sit idly by and waste this time because there's not going to hopefully be another time in our lives where we get so much time uh, to think, to plan, to spend time with people uh, that uh, we care about to catch up with people and um, just taking the time to really take advantage. And then there's a lot of negatives about this, but there's also a lot of positives in terms of being able to kind of reframe maybe what you're thinking about, what you're doing, and how to move forward. Um, so for me, that means goals, setting goals, going through my whole goal setting process if you're interested in it. Uh, there's a goal setting uh, course that I have, and there's also a bunch of videos on YouTube about it. And I just, I'm so passionate about it because I mean, I do it once, if not twice a year, going through and defining, you know, all of the things I want to do, picking, picking one thing per month and kind of really focusing on one goal per month, because sometimes we get too many things, you know, we get like all this stuff and it's like so too much to do, um, too much to do and you can't get any of it done. So uh, I find having one goal per month really helps me. And by the end of the year with 12 big projects done, you end up like light, light years ahead of where you would have been if you had not, um, focused. And, you know, even as much as I talk about goal setting and talk about all this stuff, I mean, I have my own troubles with it as well. Like there were some big projects that I really wanted to get finished this year that didn't get finished. And um, so they're just going to move to next year and you just have to keep on moving ahead and keep on pushing forward because, uh, you know, that's all we can do. So I hope you'll check that out. Music, uh, music goal setting, goal setting course. You can find it if you just Google it or go on my website. If you want some guided uh, goal setting, it comes with like a workbook and you can kind of work through it. My students at UNT have seen it my, in my studio. I gave that to them. I give that to them at the beginning of the year, whether or not they do it willingly or begrudgingly. I do think it's super useful um, to start to think about, you know, where you want to be, you know, in five years and 10 years. What kind of sound over a minor two five? Uh, well, that is kind of contextual to the tune, but um, what kind of sound over a minor two five? You got to make sure that you're using a minor seven flat five on the two chord. And 
that's only that's a, that's like if it's long. So our students were working on uh, Along Came Betty this semester. That was a tune for our studio, Along Came Betty by Benny Golson. And so at that last A of that tune, there's long, the tempo is like this. And you get four beats of C minor seven flat five, then you get a five chord, and then you get B flat minor seven flat five. Uh, and then uh, you want to make sure that you're playing a half diminished sound, which is going to be melodic minor mode. And then you, you can use diminished. And I see Trevor said I was taught to use whole half, half whole diminished patterns over minor two fives. And that's for the five chord you use those diminished patterns on. Um, if it's fast, you can ignore the two chord. But in a tune like Along Came Betty where there's a long two sound, you can't just play the five chord. It's not going to sound right. Um, it's going to sound like you're emphasizing uh, the wrong notes, especially like an A natural on, on a B flat, uh, A natural on C minor seven flat five, for example. So um, you want to make sure that you're using the right, well, because like, because check it out. So now I'm, I'm thinking through it in my head. So if you use half whole diminished on C minor seven flat five, so that'd be F seven. So you'd be F, F sharp, A flat, A natural, B, C, D, E flat. You're going to have a B natural on a C minor seven flat five with a B flat in it. You, know, there's, you can get away with mostly any note on any chord, except for there's probably two or three on each chord that like you don't want to play. And a B natural on a C minor 7 flat 5 is one of those. You don't want to play that one. Um, so that's just my opinion. And um, harmony is subjective. It I mean, there's a lot of rules, but it really ends up being subjective. And so to me, I think it's important that you go ahead and um, play a sound that goes with the minor 7 flat 5, and then you play a sound that goes with... Uh, the, the F7. So in that tune, that means uh, C minor 7 flat 5 is melodic minor sound, so that's E flat melodic minor, and then B flat <coughs> minor 7 flat 5, which would be D flat melodic minor. So if you go and kind of check out stuff like how Dizzy Gillespie and all the other bebop guys would talk about these sorts of events in harmony, they used to talk about it as like, instead of, e, uh, instead of C minor 7 flat 5, they would have written E flat minor 6 over C, and then, which is the same notes. So E flat minor six over C is the same. And you, if you see E flat minor six, you're going to play E flat melodic minor. I know this is nerdy harmony talk, but it's really important for those uh, improvisers out there uh, just to kind of be aware of. So then when you get to the five chord, you're going to play maybe altered or, or a flat nine sound. So you'd either use half whole diminished from F if you're on F7, or you could use uh, altered, altered, depending on what the sound is that the, that the band is playing. I usually default to a flat nine sound. If it doesn't specifically say altered or sharp five, sharp nine, then I go usually to a flat nine sound because that diminished is pretty uh, ubiquitous. And if someone's playing altered and you play diminished, you're going to probably be okay. But if you play altered and they're playing diminished, it might sound funny. So just food for thought. Just food for thought. Were there any jazz trombone records that changed your perspective on what was possible to do on the horn? Yeah. A lot. Of, there was a lot of times where um, that happened to me. So I guess let me. I'll start this. Start at the be the beginning of this situation. So my first introduction to jazz trombone really was through Wycliffe Gordon. So Sliding Home was the first record um, that I had. One of the first records I had JJ stuff. There was a JJ. CD that was a double CD that was JJ in person and the octet J and K octet as one uh, record one CD um, So that was one the one of the first ones and that was just like straight ahead swinging jazz stuff and then Wycliffe Gordon sliding home so 
I kind of had this idea that there were these virtuosos of the, of the instrument kind of right off the bat, you know. But um, I remember seeing the first time I saw Elliot Mason play was on a video on YouTube. It's on what is this thing called Love. It's a bootleg video from some gig with the bass player, electric bass player, uh, uh, Yannick Wasdala. And I don't even know if you can still find the video, but I remember seeing it and being like, what the hell? Like, what is he doing? And it was crazy. And I remember just, whoa, man, it's craziness. And um, I specifically remember that exactly. I was in undergrad sitting in my dorm room and going, who is this guy? And that was, I think, probably around the time he moved to New York, around the early 2000s. So I was in, at Eastman 2005, 2009. So I don't know exactly. But um, that first time I heard Marshall, what was the first record? I think I heard Marshall first... What was it? Puddle jumping. Yeah. And the re reason I heard it was from studio class at uh, Eastman. Uh, one of a guy that was two years older than me, who is a great trombonist, who is in Boston now. His name is uh, uh, his name is uh, 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 Pete Finelli. I'm sorry. I was reading a comment and blanking on his name. And anyway, he played puddle jumping in a studio class. And I was like, what? What is that? And then he's like, oh, you got to check out the original because I was like a freshman or sophomore at Eastman. And then I was like, whoa. So yeah, there's a couple. I mean, Wycliffe Gordon had always been like that to me. And then um, and then I heard about this guy named Michael Deese. It wasn't on a record, but it was at the 2004 ITF, uh, ITF in Ithaca, New York. So I was in high school and my mom let me go down to Ithaca from Rochester, which is not too far. But uh, and because I, because Wycliffe was there and I had been studying with him and she knew he was going to be there and whatever. It was fine. So that, but they played a concert with Wycliffe, Michael Deese, James Burton, Willie Applewhite, and I forget who might have been the fourth person. Maybe it was just them four. But Michael Deese was there, and I remember they played Cherokee, and that was the first time I heard Mike. So it wasn't a record so much as like hearing these people in person. And um, But it was like right there with with Wycliffe. So Wycliffe introduced me, and I got to meet those guys. They probably wouldn't remember because I was just like this dorky high school kid. But... Um, you know, after that, I got to I got to work with all those people. So all the things are evolved from diminished. Is that Barry Harris method? Uh, yeah, I mean, Barry Harris's method is very tied to the diminished. Uh, that's like talking about, you know, using passing diminished over minor, over major. Because um, the diminished, using the passing diminished comes from like the flat six, in the chromatic passing note in a major scale or a minor, or a minor bebop scale. A major bebop scale, minor bebop scale. Um, so yeah, I mean, you can use, there's a lot of things you can use. I don't know exactly what you're thinking of when you ask this question about the Barry Harris method, but, and I think Barry Harris understands it a lot more than I do, but kind of using the diminished as a point of departure for everything is something that I've been exploring for a long time. And I think I have more more layers to uncover, but um, I, I'm not gonna try to, um, explain Barry Harris's technique. I, there's so many videos on YouTube of him doing it um, that, you know, it's basically the exchange of like using diminished over major, over minor, over dominant, uh, and, and as substitutions for all those chords, he has a lot of ways of doing that. But the, the first most basic way of practicing this kind of Barry Harris diminished stuff is like playing C6, C, E, G, A, and then doing the passing diminished between D, F, A flat, B, and then playing E, G, A, C, and then F, A flat, B, D, and then G, A, C, E, and then A flat, B, D, F, like you see I'm alternating. So you, there's a simultaneously a major sound and a diminished sound at the same time. 
which can kind of unlock possibilities. But you have to really understand um, what's happening, be able to arpeggiate it, be able to play it on the piano and all that stuff to be, before I would recommend just kind of like flying willy-nilly into the abyss of diminished. It says, what's the highest note you've ever played on trombone? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I When I was actually trying to work on that, maybe a, like a double high B flat or a double high C, I don't know. But it was more like a whistle than it was a, than it was a, like a real note, that's for sure. Um, I don't know. I don't hear music up in that register that often. So I've just in the last couple of years been able to like access playing like E flat F, maybe once in a while a G high, high ones, once in a while. But that's not my meat, meat and potatoes, that's for sure. Uh, but I just got turned on to this um, really short book uh, by Norman Bolter. Uh, by Chris Van Hoff, who's a great trombone uh, teacher at Ball State University. We went to Eastman together. Anyway, it's this Norman Bolter has this packet. It's like 10 pages long, maybe less. And it's called, what is it called? I forgot. Oh, it's right here on my stand, actually. It's called High Range Exercises for Trombone. Um, that seems like it should be really uh, good. And it talks about all the important rest periods and stuff like that. So I'm going to check that out, and I'm going to check it out with my students. So if any of my students see this, uh, it's coming next semester to watch out, uh, just to develop, you know, more power and, and endurance in the upper register. Because, um, you know, my usual method, if you've seen any of the videos I've made about high note development, has always been about, you know, playing melodies in the upper register, playing music in the upper register, which is, um, I think, the best way to get comfortable with it. But then sometimes you, al you also need to be able to, like, slam a high note, you know. And that's something that I'm still working on. So I'm still trying to find some ways to work on that as well. Um, but that's a funny question, Peter. Man, that's a, that's the thing. Uh, Peter just mentioned something about like a second embouchure, like having a second embouchure, and that's something to really, really be careful of. There was a I had a trumpet player friend in undergrad who was really, really great lead trumpet player, and somebody changed his embouchure, and uh, he was like never the same. And he ended up quitting. And it's such a drag, man. So be really careful, especially if any of you out there are also teachers. You know, like changing someone's embouchure can be really damaging. Uh, so, I mean, sometimes you have to do it because sometimes uh, it's actually damaging them. But you have to be really careful with that stuff. It's not something that's like willy-nilly, like, oh, you must do it this way. So you, you must change and adapt to this generic way of playing that is, quote-unquote, the right way. Because it can be really bad and it can be really uninspiring. So be really careful um, with that if, you are per if you're a teacher. I'm always – I try to be really careful and I try to send people to, like, specialists in this, in this area because, number one, I – I'm not an embouchure expert. I know what it feels like to play in a relaxed way, but uh, you know, not recommended. What resources do you use to learn jazz history? What is important to know when it comes to jazz history? Um, well, it's important to know the history of your instrument. That's you know a good place to start. And through the history of your instrument, you can kind of learn about all the major groups. Um, and it depends what kind of what we're talking about. I mean, not everyone's going to be a historian of jazz, and they don't they might not have the memory for it. Um, you know, there's a guy named Phil Schapp in New York that teaches um, some of the Jazz at Lincoln Center jazz history stuff. Vincent Gardner is another great historian and te teaches some of those uh, Swing University things. Um, I mean, there's plenty of others. I'm not trying to exclude anybody here, but um, the th you know. I <sighs> To get your master's degree at, 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 not at Eastman, at UNT, you have to um, B, 
be able to explain, you know, in, in your comprehensive exam, the history of the jazz trombone. So there, that's a place to start. Um, the soloists, the big bands that had great trombone sections, the, the people that really defined the instrument. You know, you got to go beyond JJ and Curtis and kind of see who else is out there. But then again, like we live in an age where it's so easy to find information that I don't necessarily know that you need to, you know, memorize every single thing. I mean, I think the next generation older, you know, that I learned from, that was my teachers, like, uh, you know, Kenny Washington is a famous exa example, the drummer. He would always, you know, talk about how we need to memorize who's on all the record, all these records and a lot of things like that. And I'm not saying you shouldn't know. Because you should, and there's a lot of records that I do know, but there's so much music now, so much music. So if you, you know, like exponentially more than if you were growing up in 1960 or 1970 than growing up in 2000s, like there's exponentially more music and you can't possibly listen to or know it all. So you have to be um, selective, but I think there's, you know, a certain amount of history that you should know um, just to be able to be informed. You know, my whole approach is always to be informed and then to make decisions based on that information. So you, if you decide, if you can play me a Jack Teagarden solo and you decide you don't want to play like that, then that's fine. But if you can't do it and you don't know what it is, like to me that, that you're making a decision out of ignorance uh, because he could play incredible stuff. I had a student working on a bunch of Jack Teagarden stuff and it was like so technical, so lyrical and amazing, very stylistic to a certain period, but very challenging to execute. Not everybody can do that. Oh, go all the way back even to Dickie Wells, played with Count Basie, and even earlier than that, like Dickie Wells, check out Dickie Wells Blues, man. He's, he, talk about high notes, he's slamming high Fs uh, back in, in the 30s when he was recording that. So um, I guess that's a place, a place of entry. You also have to, you know, like decide what you're interested in. You know, I'm interested in Ellington, I'm interested in trombone players, I'm interested in the jazz messengers, you know, these kind of types of things, these different parts of jazz history. I, there's other people that I know a lot less about. Um, so you can't, you have to kind of pick and choose. You can't know everything, but, and, you know, but I think it's important to have a solid foundation, you know, and everybody's going to have a different kind of foundation. But, you know, to know, you know, we used to play a game in jazz history class. Uh, Phil Schapp would call it Pops or Not. And so he would put on all these uh, recordings and the quiz was just, is it Pops or not? Uh, because there were so many people that were copying him, you know, back in the early jazz days that uh, you had to just listen. So the best way to learn jazz history is through listening um, and then finding out about who's on the records, finding out what they're about. You know, if you don't know who Freddie Keppard is, you know, that's a trumpet player just as important as Louis Armstrong, mostly because he was on the road also going all around and playing in that style. You know, tracing things back. You know, some people like to go all the way back to Broadway shows with jazz standards, you know. Or, but there's like certain little facts that always stick with you, you know, from your research. But like I always remember that, you know, the first recording of Round Midnight is not Monk, right? It's the Cootie Williams Orchestra. Cootie Williams, who famously played with Duke Ellington. So um, I don't know. I think there's a certain amount of his, historian and like, well, history and oral tradition that's baked into the music. And it's about storytelling and it's about you know, connecting with the next generation. And so all of this, you know, teaching and sharing and listening to music together and all of that stuff was all kind of co-related, co-related, coexists, and it's all interrelated um, to having a good understanding of the history of the music. So you can't know everything, you won't know everything, and, you know, I'm okay with that. But you do have to know, 
you know, a certain amount of stuff. Like if you don't know who Curtis Fuller played with or JJ or whatever, like there's some people you need to know about and you need to know Jack Teagarden and Trummy Young and uh, or Kid Ori and at least be able to say, oh yeah, they played with these groups. Not every single thing, but just for your own uh, gigging ability. So you can say like, oh man, I know I need to play in this style or that. So I need like a Teagarden vibe here. So um, there's a lot, there's a lot to it, but hopefully that gives you an overview, Jay. I know that's a lot of information, but I look forward to connecting with you all very soon. So feel free to send questions for future episodes in advance if you want to make sure your question gets answered, because uh, I compile a list every week, and if I have some, I bring them and always start off the Q&A kind of with those questions. So have an amazing weekend. I hope you're all staying healthy and sane during this crazy year, but uh, we will catch you next time.